From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, November 23rd. I'm Aaron Schachter. Protests in Egypt after the country's Islamist president gives himself sweeping powers, but he has plenty of defenders too, like this Muslim Brotherhood spokesman. Every time Egypt reaches the end of its transition period and we can almost see the shoreline of the start of a new democracy, someone sinks the boat. This time the president is adamant that no one does so. And later, why Made in America is increasingly popular in China and why a World War II era code is so hard to break. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi today insisted that his country is on the path to freedom and democracy, a day after granting himself sweeping new powers. I would like to tell you that we all have equal rights in this nation, Morsi told supporters in Cairo today. He added, this great nation is a ship of safety for all of us. With God's help and thanks to the will and the vote of the people, I have been declared the captain of this ship. By his own decree, Morsi now is immune from judicial oversight. He also has the authority to take any steps against, quote, threats to the revolution. But there are many in Egypt who believe the president's new powers are a threat. Thousands of opponents of the Islamist president burned Muslim Brotherhood offices across the country and clashed with Morsi supporters. Heba Murayef with Human Rights Watch in Cairo calls the new presidential powers a dangerous situation. We have a president in the absence of a parliament who can pass laws and can pass constitutional declarations. So he could pass a law tomorrow banning all private media and there would be no avenue for those of us in the human rights community to challenge that on constitutional grounds. He set himself up above a constitution in a sense. And while I think up until now he's behaved very cautiously in terms of using that legislative authority, um, another provision in today's constitutional declaration is really worrying us in the human rights community. Article 6 says that if there are any threats to the revolution, the president can take all necessary measures to counter that threat. That's language we're very familiar with from the Mubarak era and the time of the emergency law, and we're worried about why he felt this was necessary. Why protect himself from judicial oversight at a time like this? That was Heba Murayev with Human Rights Watch in Cairo. President Morsi's supporters defend his decision to give himself sweeping powers. Gihad el-Haddad is a senior Muslim Brotherhood advisor in Cairo. He's also a member of the Executive Council of the Brotherhood's Renaissance Project. El-Haddad says President Morsi needed, to de- needed the declaration of new powers to sack an unpopular general prosecutor and to rein in a hostile judiciary that wasn't willing to go after members of former President Hosni Mubarak's regime. It's a self-destructing declaration, meaning that in two months' time, once we have a draft constitution presented to the president, it goes to referendum, and once it's in effect, by default, all the presidential declarations are null and void. 
Now, Gihad, though, you understand why people are concerned, right? I mean, there, there are people uh, demonstrating in the streets now. Four, at least four offices of the Muslim Brotherhood have been set on fire around the country. The rule sounds an awful lot like what was in place for 30 years under Mubarak. I'm glad you chose the word sounds, because in reality, that's exactly how it sounds. But this rule was born literally out of necessity, because we've exhausted every other legal outlet within the current structure of the law in Egypt that was constructed by the Mubarak regime to allow the judiciary last say in all elements pertaining to continuation of building of the state. So on the, in effect on the ground, even the prosecutor general's position, someone that was long known to be one of the cruelest state security officers that has been promoted to become an everlasting prosecutor general for Egypt. Um, President Morsi tried to take this through uh, the simple, direct, respectable means and allowed him a promotion into an ambassador's position. Um, unfortunately, many of the opposers of the declaration now today safeguarded the prosecutor general and stood with him against the president's decision. So he had to resort to this declaration in order to remove him from his office and allow reopening the cases against Mubarak, his family, his, military, um, his minister of uh, interior affairs, and his top police generals. Every time Egypt reaches the end of its transition period and we can almost see the shoreline of the start of a new democracy, someone sinks the boat. This time the president is adamant that no one does so. Gihad, though, you obviously, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, you trust President Mohamed Morsi to do the right thing. The problem, though, is that in the next two months, it is entirely possible to use these powers in a way that the majority does not agree with. That is possible, is it not? Yes, it is. Will the president, do you think, give up these powers in two months or or whenever the Constitution is written? I don't think he has a choice to give them or not give them. The second clause of the declaration, um, the last phrase in it, is a phrase to self-destruct this this declaration and all previous declarations once the constitution is in place. We're talking about the rules self-destructing when a constitution is written, but the fact is that may or may not happen in two months. There, There have been several extensions of the deadline. There hasn't been several extensions. There have actually been two extensions. And this second extension is only for two months. I guess my point is that you are speaking legally about the presidential powers going away, but a lot of things are up in the air, things that may or may not happen. That's correct, but from... So, uh, so what guarantees are there really that the president will give up these powers, that they will, in fact, self-destruct? There were never any guarantees, even during the time of his election. He was being elected as president without a clear knowledge of his power, without knowing what a, without having a constitution in place in Egypt to govern, with, at the time, a ruling military council that was adamant on taking the power in Egypt, and with no parliament in place. So at the time of elections, Egyptians knew exactly what they were voting for. They were voting for someone who can, they can put their trust in to manage this transition. And this someone, this president, saw a, a clear danger that can derail Egypt's transition, and he acted within his legal bounds to protect the transition against that danger. So, so from so, my perspective, at least, I'd rather put my trust in the elected official. How do you deal, do you think, with the building violence that we talked about against the Brotherhood, the demonstrations that are ongoing today in Tahrir Square and elsewhere? Yeah. There's two sides to this, or the two elements to this. The first is the voicing of opposition itself, 
gathering, protesting. And of course, this is all protected under the law now. And President Morsi, even in his address, voiced his support to both groups, those in support and those in opposition. The other side of that is the burning of the different office buildings of the Freedom and Justice Party and, and attacking its supporters and so on. And at the end of the day, I mean, as unfortunate as this are, we just don't see this as a very constructive way of political opposition. Because um, if the tables were the other way around, I've ne- I can never see um, our party going around burning other, uh, the other parties their office buildings and so on. So I think it's, it's this, this type of mentality will fade away the more democratic culture um, starts spreading in Egypt. And the, at least for me, the moment we have democratic institutions that can showcase such a culture. Jihad El-Haddad is a senior advisor to the Muslim Brotherhood. Thank you uh, for taking the time. Thank you. Spain's northeast region of Catalonia holds elections on Sunday. If the main Catalan Nationalist Party wins a majority, the vote could lead to a referendum on independence from Spain. Catalans have long had their grievances with Spain, complaining mainly that they pay too much in taxes and would be better off on their own. But Catalans don't just live in Spain. The world's Jerry Haddon crossed into northern Catalonia in southern France to see what Catalans there think about the drive for independence. Outside a stationery store in the regional capital, Perpignan, red and yellow striped Catalan flags flap in the breeze. You might think it's a political statement, but the store's owner, Frédéric Abriba, says he also sells French flags. Abriba is a French Catalan, but he says he isn't paying much attention to Spanish Catalonia's independence drive. I was born here, he says, and this region has been part of France since 1659. That's when France and Spain signed the Treaty of the Pyrenees, essentially granting France the sliver of Catalan territory on its side of the mountains. This idea of Spanish-Catalan independence isn't new, Abribras says. This is a history that belongs to those on the other side of the border. And on Spain's side, excitement over Sunday's vote is palpable. Spanish-Catalans feel they've never been closer to independence, Recently, nearly two million people marched in favor of it in the streets of Barcelona. But France's half a million Catalans are largely indifferent because they feel French. Catalan too, but mainly French. Key to that has been language. In Spain, Catalans have defended their language for centuries. Since the 1970s, Catalan has been the language in public schools. Here in France, says Perpignan's Catalan Affairs Councillor Jaume Pol, only about one in five people use Catalan daily. Even fewer can read it and write it. We have lost the Catalan language compared to Spain, he says. There is only one official language in France, and that is French, period. After the French Revolution in the late 18th century, the state set out to put a public school in every village. Teachers were referred to as soldiers of the Republic, with a mission to build a cohesive French identity. It worked. That, coupled with France's relative prosperity, has made it unlikely that a Catalan independence movement would ever take root here. That's not to say French Catalans aren't proud of their culture and language. Last spring, some 7,000 Catalans gathered on this same square. They made this video, which you can even watch in 3D. The camera takes you on a sort of staged stroll through French Catalan history and culture. The lyrics are all about the love of Catalan. For most Catalans here, preserving the language and staying French isn't a contradiction. 
for most Catalans. On a recent afternoon, the leaders of Alsamics de Catalunya, or Friends of Catalonia, hold a meeting. Some are organizing a bus ride to Barcelona to witness Sunday's historic vote. Others, like Jordi Vera, are trying to convince fellow French Catalans that an independent Catalan state next door would be great news here. Vera is a city councillor in Perpignan. If Spanish Catalonia is independent, he says, it would have more economic resources. That means more money for cultural exchanges across our border, but also for our economy. There'd be a new synergy that's never existed before. Friends of Catalonia only has a few dozen members. The group's ultimate aim is to see a Catalan state that includes all Catalan people including them. But dreaming that dream can be frustrating, says local artist Eric Forcada. He and some colleagues have formed a collective called Mirmanda. Their goal, as governments, politicians and activists squabble over borders, is to transcend them altogether. In this online video, they're urging Catalan artists everywhere to join together, no matter how Spanish Catalonia votes on Sunday. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Perpignan, France. And you can see that video at theworld.org. Debunking religious miracles coming up next on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. India is no stranger to headline-making miracles. A few years ago, statues of the Hindu elephant god Ganesha supposedly drank milk placed before them. But there are groups of rationalists in India who make it their job to disprove such reported miracles. The president of one such group, called Rationalist International, has enraged Catholic leaders in Mumbai and faces jail time, as Ashley Cleek reports. Sanal Edamaruku is a devout rationalist. He believes that all phenomena can be explained by science. Sanal has taken it upon himself to travel around India disproving miracles. In 2010, on live television, Sanal challenged a tantric who claimed he could kill a man with one look. Sanal survived. But it's not just about theatrics. Sanal says miracle men and superstitions are a deep problem in India. problem is, you know, unlike... Um, small superstitions like uh, people are afraid of a catch crossing their way. In India, superstitions have a deeper impact. It's making them weak and it's blinding them. Sunil points to many cases where people worry they've been a victim of witchcraft and actually kill the people they believe have cursed them. I met Sunil three years ago in Delhi, but this time we spoke over Skype because Sunil has to camp to Europe for an extended lecture tour. Back home, Sunil could face jail time. So what happened? The controversy began in a sleepy back street in a middle-class neighborhood of Mumbai with a 12-foot-tall statue of Jesus. It's pretty conventional. Thin body, fallen head, stigmata on the hands and feet highlighted in bright red paint. This cross was built in Thanksgiving by parents of A.M. Dias after his birth in 1873. Gordon Jacobs is the president of a Catholic organization in Mumbai. Eight months ago, in March, a Hindu woman who cleans the statue noticed water dripping from the feet. She spread the word, and soon the place was packed. Church leaders say they never claimed it to be a miracle, 
but newspapers were filled with headlines like, Mad Rush to See the Jesus Miracle. A local TV station called up the mythbuster, Sunal, to get his opinion on the phenomenon. He responded, characteristically, that such a miracle was impossible. The Catholic groups insisted that Sunal come investigate. So he went, and he looked. And it's not surprising the Catholic groups didn't like what he found. On a national TV program, Sunil explained that a wall behind the statue was damp with water and algae. He figured the water source was likely a sewer line running close to the cross, and that was the so-called miracle. To make a statement, make a statement. To make a statement that the church is against science, you are totally ignorant. In that televised discussion, which included the Archbishop of Mumbai, Sanal went further. He accused the church of being anti-science and mocked the Pope for condoning exorcism. Archie Sauter was part of the TV debate. He's a lawyer and a Catholic. He says they asked Sunil repeatedly to apologize for the comments he made on air about the Pope and the Catholic Church. But Sunil refused. We gave him an open opportunity to apologize for what he did. The telecast was being watched live by millions of people. We gave him an opportunity. We told him, apologize in true Christian style, which he refused. Therefore, we had no option but to... uh, uh, lodge the complaints. Two complaints were lodged under Law 295A, commonly called the Blasphemy Law. It's an old law from the time of the British Raj to punish anyone who, quote, maliciously and deliberately attempts to harm the religious feelings of another. It was created to prevent religious fighting and intolerance, but has been used to silence religious dissenters. John Dial is the former president of the All India Catholic Union, which represents some 16 million Catholics in India. Dial says in this case, the law is being misused. He has a right. He's a fanatic atheist and a fanatic rationalist, but that is he. I think a rationalist is necessary because it makes me introspect on my own faith. It makes me introspect on why I believe. They are the pinpricks that keep us on our toes. They are the ones who show a mirror to the society. Rationalists are not questioning faith. They are questioning blind faith. They are questioning fake miracles. They are questioning sleet of hand. Real faith doesn't require all these things. But the lines have been drawn. The complaints are being investigated by the police, and the Catholic organizations remain stalwart. Catholics make up only 2% of the 1.2 billion people in India. Sunil says he's not singling out the church. Rather, denouncing miracles and disproving superstitions is his life's work. And over the past 30 years, he has attacked almost every religion and spiritual leader in India, including the phenomenally popular Sati Sai Baba, whose followers have included presidents of India. This is the first time a case has been lodged against him. I never believed that such a thing would happen in India. I never ever thought that doing something to promote scientific temple and educating people against superstition would be taken as a crime in India. That's a serious setback in the whole process of our growth in India. The Catholic Church in Mumbai has released a statement saying they are not complicit with the complaints filed against Sunil, though the Archbishop has reiterated that Sunil should apologize and the complaints be dropped. Sunil remains in Europe on his speaking tour, which he says will last until he can be assured of his safety. For The World, I'm Ashley Cleek in Mumbai, India. Today's GeoQuiz doesn't involve miracles, but it is a mystery, written in code. (music) 
It all started with a dead pigeon found in a chimney in southern England. The pigeon had a small red container attached to its leg, and inside the container was a coded message written during World War II. No one has been able to figure out what the message says, not to mention who wrote it or who the intended recipient was. The message was turned over to the British government's top codebreakers, and they can't figure it out either. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is twofold. First, name the county just south of London where the dead pigeon was discovered in a chimney. Second, name the home of Britain's World War II code-breaking headquarters. We'll have the answers a bit later in the program. Before we take a break, here's another quick quiz for you. What's the official name of our neighbor to the south? No, it's not Mexico. It's the United Mexican States. You should have known that. That's been the official name since Mexico adopted its 1824 constitution. And yes, the name was chosen to emulate the United States of America. But this week, Mexico's outgoing president suggested changing the name to just Mexico. El nombre de nuestro país ya no tiene por qué seguir emulando al de Felipe Calderón said our country's name no longer needs to emulate that of other nations like it did back in the 19th century. This is one of his last acts in office. Calderón's due to hand power to a new president on December 1st, after six years presiding over unprecedented levels of drug-related violence in Mexico. Perhaps that's why his proposal has generated a wave of mockery on Twitter. Users are suggesting their own names for the country, and one of the most frequent suggestions is Narcolandia. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up, the real story behind the island where the villain in the new Bond movie hangs out. There are ghosts there for sure, and there is there is something not right about the place for sure. There is nothing pretty about it. There's nothing beautiful about it. It's just like death and decay, the whole place. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This is Black Friday, and you know what that means, right? Millions of American shoppers have been swarming malls and big-box retailers to take advantage of those Black Friday deals. And a lot of the stuff we're buying, you know, is made in China. But over in China, an increasing number of shoppers now prefer American-made goods. Joining me now is Hal Serkin, a senior partner with the Boston Consulting Group. He co-authored a new study about global attitudes toward American-made products. Uh, Hal, tell us what you found out about Chinese consumers and American-made goods. So we were a bit surprised because we found that Chinese consumers deliberately choose American-made products. We surveyed them, and we found out that 64% 
have chosen an American-made product in the past month, and 52% of them said that they did it even though the product was significantly more expensive. Now, Hal, your study says that uh, Chinese consumers will pay more for American baby food and toys, um, and considering the scandals in, in China, that's not so shocking. But also, sneakers? Are, are there American-made sneakers, and, and, and why would they buy them? Yes, there are American-made sneakers. The U.S. still makes sneakers. Uh, New Balance is a company that still makes sneakers in the United States. And, and there's uh, several reasons why they buy them. When we ask Chinese consumers what matters to them, the highest response comes from they feel better about the quality. They say that U.S. products are more durable, and that means they'll last longer. And they also say, and a bit surprising, is that U.S.-made products are more environmentally friendly, uh, and they feel that's an important aspect of things as well. Now, your survey says that people are willing to pay a premium for American-made goods. How much more is an American sneaker, for example, than a Chinese-made one? Well, if you ask them in China, right, you'd see a very substantial premium. I think the number is somewhere around 70% or so, an extremely large premium. For many other goods, though, the numbers range somewhere between 10 and 20%. For what else, for example? Uh, we've looked at things like uh, gas ranges, wooden baby toys. And, and for an appliance, people are really willing to pay 20 or, or more percent more? Well, same in the U.S., right? I can buy a relatively low-end appliance or I can buy you know, a sub-zero refrigerator. And that premium is quite substantial. Now, so much manufacturing has left the United States in uh, recent years. Do you, do you think your survey is a, a ray of hope for American manufacturing? Yeah, I think there's actually a lot of hope for American manufacturing. And I think uh, you need to look back in time because in 2001, China entered the WTO with wages that were only 58 cents an hour. And since then, wages have been rising at 15 to 20%. And what we're seeing is over the next few years, we're going to find for a lot of goods, the cost to produce in China plus all the cost it takes to get it to the United States are going to be about the same for a significant portion of the goods that we import from China. How the, the people you uh, spoke with in your survey, are they uh, middle class, upper class, random, what? Well, the screen is they're middle class and above because most of these products couldn't be bought by people in the lower classes. So it's probably the top 300 million people in China. And we all of them, of course. <laughs> the top 300 million. Which is um, where, you, where sort of the middle class begins right now. American manufacturers must be really excited about that. I mean, you, you talk about the top 300 million, but... Um, that number of middle class and above is rising. This is all great news, I would think. Oh, it's very good news. So, and that's why you see companies, you know, Ethan Allen Furniture now has 30 showrooms in China. Brooks Brothers Suits, they also have a little bit more than 30 showrooms, and they're expanding because uh, they can charge a premium for American-made goods and sell them at a very attractive price point. Hal Serkin is with the Boston Consulting Group. He's a co-author of a new study, Made in America, again. Thank you for your time, Hal. You're welcome. Now, here's a slightly creepy Black Friday shopping note. Okay, maybe more than slightly creepy. If you're standing in front of a mannequin in a shop today and you feel like it might be looking back at you, well, the fact is, it just might be. Italian mannequin maker Almax has taken customer research to a whole new level. The firm's IC model comes complete with a camera eye that is, in its own way, spying on you as you shop. I don't like the, the word spy because we're not spying, but we don't collect any image. We don't recognize any people. We just give statistics. That is demographic data, such as age, gender, even race. Max Catanese is the CEO of Almax. It has a face recognition system inside uh, the eye of the mannequin. 
which doesn't spy customers, but just makes exactly what the retailers need. Track gives demographic data about who's passing in front of the mannequin. Privacy advocates are understandably a bit nervous about the IC, but Cantonese notes that shops these days are filled with all kinds of security cameras recording your every move. He insists the IC isn't doing that. Let's say that I pass in front of the mannequin now. The mannequin is not saying that Max Catanese passed in front of the mannequin. He's just saying to the retailer that uh, an adult male uh, Caucasian passed in front of the mannequin at uh, 9 p.m. and stayed for two minutes. Cantonese won't say exactly how many IC mannequins are on the job, but Almax does say five companies in the U.S. and Europe are already using them. American engineers and inventors who work in places in the developing world might tell you that getting an invention to people who need it can be challenging. It's a steep learning curve for anyone navigating the process on their own. Now a small group of international development companies in Denver has an idea to make the process a little easier. Their solution comes in the form of an abandoned 19th century horse barn. The world's Jason Margolis reports from Denver. Engineer Steve Katsaros came up with a pretty good idea to help people without electricity. Take a light bulb and attach some small solar panels. Let me show you something. I'll give you a good sound bite here. (laughs) He shows me an LED bulb surrounded by a bubble of hard plastic, the same material used in car headlights. Uh, It can be dropped. I mean, just and then just pick it up. He picks it up off the concrete and not a scratch. Katsaros is hoping to sell these bulbs to many of the 1.3 billion people in the developing world who use kerosene lamps, which are polluting and more expensive to use. But his company, Nocaro, only has 13 employees worldwide. And that brings us to the old converted horse barn. Andrew Romanoff is with the Colorado organization IDE. The group is focused on anti-poverty efforts in the developing world. So we're standing in front of a 25,000-square-foot, 110-year-old horse barn. Once upon a time, this building housed both the trolleys that the Denver City Railway Company operated and the horses that drew those trolleys. Today, many of the windows are blown out or boarded up. Inside, the brick walls have been charred by fire. The building, which is owned by the city of Denver, has sat this way for two decades. Then Romanoff's group IDE came along. It's costing the city and IDE some $2.3 million to renovate. Romanoff says this place should look pretty different by next summer. Inside the building, although it's difficult to tell now once you get past the dirt floors and the pigeons, you'll find office space eventually uh, for 30 different organizations and 120 employees. Half of the floor plan is designated as common space, so you'll find conference rooms and boardrooms, a lunchroom, a lecture hall. This idea, sharing workspace, is nothing new. You can find hundreds of examples across the world with entrepreneurs, artists, or nonprofits doing this. But Romanoff says this one will be a little different. This is the first shared space initiative dedicated to international development, to our knowledge. IDE has recruited companies working on projects in agriculture, health, and microfinance to come on board. The common theme, fighting global poverty. When Steve Katsaros, the guy who makes solar light bulbs, heard about the horse barn, he says he was all in. Just love the idea of getting everybody together because there's so much opportunity for, hey, you're going to Nigeria, I need this a bit of information there, or I've got a connection for you in Kenya, or I've got an entity in Chile that you might want to meet with. So we're going to have a lot of this interaction. 
interaction with people like Avery Bang, executive director of the group Bridges to Prosperity. They build footbridges in places like Haiti, Rwanda, and East Timor. Bang says she's looking forward to being in close contact with other Denver companies, learning how they deal with things like negotiating with foreign ministries. And she's also eager to share more mundane resources. As an executive director, I I don't like to deal with the financial, accounting, payroll, human resources, travel logistics, a lot of the less obvious, um, less tactile shared services, I think will actually become one of the primary benefits of being in this building. And then we also have these uh, phone booths over here because space is at such a premium. To get a better sense of how a shared space operates, I took a tour of the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Bill Allett is the center director. And then we have our food groups over here. We have ramen noodles. We have Red Bull. The idea of shared space is deeply ingrained in East Cambridge for both MIT students and alumni. And the number of successful companies that began in these few square blocks is staggering. If you combine the companies started by MIT alumni into a new country, it'd be the 11th biggest economy in the world. But here's a question. Do these businesses thrive because of the culture of collaboration? Or are these just really smart people who would do well anywhere? So we did a lot of research on this, and there's a big question about whether shared space is really the factor. We believe that shared space is a positive thing. What it does is it builds a sense of community. And the learning that goes on is lateral learning, not just hierarchical learning. And there's also this sense of community. And when it's an entrepreneur, the oscillations that you go through, the ups and downs emotionally, you want to have a group that supports you in that as well. A successful entrepreneur I met in Cambridge said you need a physical space to keep talented people tethered to the area and energized. In Denver, people like Avery Bang are starting to feel that way. We are a group of folks, a lot of returned Peace Corps volunteers, a lot of folks that have spent years living and working in rural areas abroad, coming back and saying, well, you know, there needs to be solutions to these problems. And I think Denver is positioned very strongly to be that center. Right now, that center is a dilapidated brick building in a depressed part of town. But the people I met in Denver say the scrappiness of the project makes it all the more appealing. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Denver. So, have you seen it yet? Well, since I had to work and the family was away, I went and saw the new Bond film, Skyfall. Don't worry, I won't give away the ending or anything, but there was one part of the movie that really caught my eye. It's the island where Javier Bardem's twisted villain hangs out, the way it sat out there in the middle of the ocean, populated with nothing but rotting, giant buildings. It was so creepy it couldn't be real. But it is real and real creepy, as the world's Clark Boyd tells us. The island is known as Hashima, and it sits about nine miles off the Japanese coast in the East China Sea. In the late 1880s, coal was found on the seafloor beneath the island. In the early days, Japan's Mitsubishi Company, which was mining the coal, would ferry miners to and from the worksite. Then, the company decided it would be easier to just build houses for the workers and their families on Hashima itself. Giant, multi-story concrete apartment blocks went up. Schools, bathhouses, temples, restaurants and markets, even a graveyard were built. All on the space the size of a football field. And once they reached 5,000 people or more out there, it was recognized as the most densely populated place on Earth ever. Thomas Nordenstad is a Swedish filmmaker. A decade ago, he became interested in Hashima's history and wanted to make a documentary about the island. 
he and his filmmaking partner went to Japan, but the Japanese weren't interested in talking about it. We met a lot of embarrassment. We met a lot of hushed faces, a lot of people who would turn away as soon as we started speaking about the island, almost like it was a leper colony of some kind. Nordenstadt eventually found someone to take him out to the island. The short film he made follows Dotoku Sakamoto, whose family moved to Hashima when he was four. In this scene, Sakamoto returns to his family's apartment for the first time in 30 years. This is where I lived with my family, Sakamoto says. My mother's decorations are still up here. A few seconds later, he finds the marks on the walls that recorded his sister's height through the years. Hashima, you see, is completely abandoned. The buildings are slowly falling down, worn away by the wind and waves. So, what happened? In 1974, the coal ran out, and the Mitsubishi company told the people that they would have some work for them on the mainland, provided on a first-come, first-served basis. And that's why people left so quickly leaving coffee cups, you know, left on the tables and bicycles leaning on the wall, against the walls. And it, it was quite amazing. And I think that very few people had been to the island when we got there. It was practically untouched. Nordenstad's film follows Sakamoto as he finds a schoolhouse with the teacher's name still written on the blackboard. Sakamoto reflects on the people who once lived there and risked their lives in the mines below. <laughs> It's like the souls of the dead linger down here, Sakamoto says. So many people died, so unnecessarily. But these are probably things I shouldn't talk about. Nordenstad's documentary is a decade old, but two years ago something strange happened. Actor Daniel Craig, who plays Bond, was in Stockholm shooting a different movie. He was staying at a hotel where one of Nordenstad's pictures of Hashima was hanging on the wall. Nordenstad remembers being introduced to Craig at some event. He leaned back with a kind of a typical sort of like raised Bondian eyebrow. And I told him the story about Hashima. And he noted everything down. And for a while I thought he was going to buy this piece, but he didn't. And, and then two years later it came out, the movie. Skyfall only features external shots of Hashima. Japanese officials don't allow anyone to set foot on the island itself. But lately, interest in Hashima as a grisly tourist site has grown. A boardwalk has been built around half the island. That's about as close as you can get. Meanwhile, Dotoku Sakamoto wants the island to be recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But South Korea objects. The Japanese allegedly used Koreans as slave laborers on Hashima. It's yet another shameful chapter in the island's history. The place, says Thomas Nordenstad, is haunted. There are ghosts there, for sure, and there is there is something not right about the place, for sure. There is nothing pretty about it. There's nothing beautiful about it. It's just like death and decay, the whole place. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. You can see Thomas Nordenstad's stunning documentary on Hashima at theworld.org. And while you're there, check out our blogs, including a look at the Gaza Twitter war and China food safety. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. For today's GeoQuiz, we asked you to name two places. One was the home of Britain's World War II code-breaking headquarters. That's Bletchley Park. We also asked for the name of the English county, where a dead pigeon was found recently, bearing a message that stumped Britain's top code-breakers. The world's Andrea Crossan takes it from there. You could call it Pigeon Impossible. It all started with a dead pigeon found stuck in a chimney in southern England. 
in Surrey, to be exact, which is part B of our GeoQuiz answer today. This dead pigeon had a small canister attached to its leg. It contained a handwritten message written in code. Experts from the British intelligence agency GCHQ believe the message was written during World War II, but that's about as much as they know about it. A GCHQ historian named Tony, last name undisclosed, told the BBC why the agency has so far failed to crack the code. The sort of codes that were constructed to be used during operations were designed only to be able to be read by the senders and the recipients. And unless you get rather more idea than we have about who actually sent this message and who it was being sent to, we're not going to be able to find out what the underlying code that was being used was. Carrier pigeons were used extensively by British forces during World War II. Ian Standen, chief executive of the Bletchley Park Trust, says they often carried key information. There were hundreds of thousands of them being used for all sorts of things. And one of the sort of the, the main things was sending them out with aircraft, bombers. And when the bomber was downed, if it unlucky to be downed, the pigeon would be sent back with the message to say that the, uh, the plane had landed and that hopefully the crew was safe, although including going to be in captivity. The other was, and it looks like this is probably the, the case, used by the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, with agents behind the lines, perhaps sending back situation reports about uh, sabotage activity they'd be undertaking. As for the dead pigeon that never delivered its message... The codebreakers at GCHQ haven't given up on cracking the code. They've asked the public for help, says Tony the Historian. The most helpful suggestion we had through all of this was from a member of the public who suggested that as the message had been found in a chimney, the first two words were likely to be Dear Santa. For The World, I'm Andrea Crossan. Think you can decode the pigeon's wartime message, Mr. Phelps? You can see it at theworld.org. And finally today, we meet a clarinet player from Turkey. Husnu Selenderici uses his instrument to explore connections between cultures. Recently, he performed in Philadelphia, where reporter Bruce Wallace caught up with him. You've no doubt heard how Turkey is a crossroads of the world goods and cultures and armies passing through and intermingling. One thing that didn't make it all the way across? The clarinet. The clarinet came to Turkey from the Balkans, but it didn't quite make it to the Middle East. You hear it more in music from the Aegean part of Turkey. There, on Turkey's western shore, is where Husnu Stenlendirici found it. It's a major part of the music of that region. That's where I'm from, and it's been a part of my life since childhood. The clarinet has been in Sanlandirici's family even longer. Both of his grandfathers played it. No surprise, then, his nimble ease on the instrument. It's also at home on this type of song. It's called a longa and has its roots in Turkey, although it's now popular in the Arab world, too. The members of the quartet playing with Sanlandarici in Philadelphia carry musical expertise from all over the Middle East. The group's violinist, Hanahuri, says one place they find common ground is in improvisation. 
There are two forms of improvisations. There is uh, the improvisations that happen as we perform the piece itself. You know, I can take a melody and embellish it in many, many different ways. You know, all the lines moving in the same direction, yet there is all these variations, you know, due to the personal uh, improvisation of each one of the musicians. So it creates this thick layer. At other times, the ensemble settles into the background, letting a soloist's flights of improvisation transport the listeners. This music is supposed to transcend you, you know, like into a whole new uh, place. Uh, it's very emotional, a lot of it. It's supposed to move you. You either want to dance to it, sometimes you want to say... Uh, Allah, you know, this the ecstatic feel of this music. For most of the night, the musicians were looking to history for points of musical connection. On this song, they were focused on the present. It's a new one written by the group's cellist, Kanan Abu Afash. He was born in Syria, and the song's alternating bright and shadowy passages are inspired by his memories of day breaking over the Syrian countryside. The song, called Morning, is a new entry in the ongoing conversation between Arab and Turkish music. From the moment that I first heard Kenan's song, I thought to myself, I've got to play this. Senlin Derici plans to take this song back to Turkey with him and put it out on his next album. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace, Philadelphia. You can see a video of Selenderici performing on stage. You know where we are at theworld.org. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. The World is produced by Jeb Sharp with Andrea Crossan, Joyce Hackle, Carol Hills, David Lavalley, April Peavy, Adeline Sear, and Tracy Tong. Ann Lopez is our director. Our editors are Jennifer Gorin, David Barron, and Peter Thompson. William Troop is senior editor. Chris Wolf is news editor. Our managing editor is Jonathan Dyer. The executive producer of The World is Andrew Sussman. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter. Have a great weekend.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International